Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are David Crow, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent. This week, we'll be discussing Credit Suisse as it prepares for a share buyback, a look at Amazon Web Services as the tech giant expands its offering for banks, and finally, at HSBC, two more challenges for the global bank. First, though, to Credit Suisse and Stephen, you broke a story about them planning a share buyback and maybe some disappointment about the scale of it compared to expectations. What exactly is going on? Yeah, that's right. It's not been a brilliant year so far for Credit Suisse, which is sort of three years into a turnaround under ex-insurance CEO Tijan Tiam. Shares have fallen 27% in the last six months. Now, unbelievably, that's actually more than Deutsche Bank and Unicredit. So shareholders are looking forward to this investment update on Wednesday, really looking to get an idea of where the growth is going to come from and how he's going to turn the story of this bank around. Now, Credit Suisse haven't done a buyback for a long time, not since before the financial crisis. So this is kind of a milestone in showing that they do have the capital and liquidity to give back. The bank is actually now starting to earn money. However, we wrote a story saying that it's unlikely to hit what most analysts had expected and called for, which is about 2 billion francs next year. It's more likely to be around half that amount with a very modest increase with the dividend. Now, our sources were telling us that this is because the bank wants to keep some of this excess capital back, you know, for any unexpected surprises on the regulatory front, and also so it can help invest in its business as it continues to shift into a a huge global wealth manager from its previous incarnation as a large investment bank. It's interesting, isn't it, how banks, which are now generally, they've reached their regulatory capital levels, they're starting to accumulate capital. What do they do with it? You've been writing with David about Standard Chartered, thinking about share buybacks as well. And I'm sure we're going to see more of this as time goes on. But balancing that thirst from investors for capital to be bought back and also balance that against the growth story, if you like, the growth potential that banks can go for. Clearly, in Credit Suisse's case, they've got a big Asian strategy, which presumably could suck up all of this capital if they wanted to invest it there. Exactly. I mean, we are seeing a big trend from banks that have been out there raising capital, as you said, like Standard Chartered and Credit Suisse, now looking at returning some of this back. I think part of it is just the sheer pressure management teams are under from very upset shareholders who have seen hundreds of billions of value wiped out of European bank stocks over the past few years. And also, it's an important signal. They think they're coming out of the era where they have to build capital. They think they're coming out from a time where they're having to pay billions in misconduct fines in the US and elsewhere each year. So it's a sign of the direction of intent from the management. You remember UBS, the Swiss rival of Credit Suisse, unveiled their own buyback in October, which again was half the amount analysts had estimated they could afford to do and expected them to do. And the shares fell quite sharply on that news. So certainly we'll be on the lookout on Wednesday to see if Mr. Tiam faces the same fate at Credit Suisse. 
Absolutely. Thank you for that, Stephen. Let's move on to our second topic and a look at Amazon Web Services, which provides cloud services for multinationals around the world, as well as small companies. So last week at the FT's Banking Summit, I caught up with Jonathan Allen, who is the company's enterprise strategist and evangelist. And among the questions I put to him was this one about how long it would be before banks generally, all the big banks in the world, moved onto the cloud. Well, potentially. We continue to work with customers one by one in a very customer-obsessed way. And interestingly, you know, last year, when you look at the amount of features and enhancements and significant new services we launched, we actually launched 1,430 of them. And 90 to 95% of those all track back directly to an individual customer conversation. I myself, over the last 20 months in AWS, have had over 172 conversations with established players when I've gone very deep in certain elements of how they want to develop and innovate increasingly. So we, we continue to take it with one customer conversation at a time, but you know we have a lot of customers now operating at scale with critical workloads. I next asked him what this meant for the risk in the system and for regulation. If people are worried about systemic risk in the banking sector, around 30 or so systemically important financial institutions reckon to be in the world, according to regulators, how much more risky would it be for all these institutions to put their computer systems on to three or four cloud providers? Well, you know, we continue to engage extremely closely with the regulators around the world. And interestingly, we have over 203 significant security certifications and assertions. Mm-hmm. That's around 40 more than the next closest provider. We continue to really engage with the regulators. If you look over the last few years, both the Financial Conduct Authority, closely followed by the European Banking Authority, have regulated in this space. And we continue to both align and comply with their guidelines. Um, if you take a look, actually, you know, we even have regulators now using AWS themselves. So you look at FINRA, who are one of the USA's largest independent regulators for the securities. They are currently using AWS to process 75 billion events daily. So for them to use that securely and at scale, delivering amazing improvements to how they actually regulate the markets is pretty transformational. And we continue to operate with the regulators country by country and help share our tools, our processes. And finally, I suggested that Amazon might have ambitions to break into mainstream financial services themselves. Yeah, we have no plans to do so, Patrick. And again, I'm not, I'm not going to comment on that speculation. <laughs> but, you know, we, we are really focused on working with our enterprise customers to really help them solve the problems they're faced with and innovate at scale and then remove that undifferentiated heavy lifting and help them really elevate their security model to really take advantage of the economies of scale. Uh, you know, you talked closely about both security and reliability, you know, a minute ago, along with the innovation, along with the cost innovation, that's the other thing that we see coming through time and time and time again in our conversations. Because you want to go faster, you want to innovate for your customers. You want to have just those folks, that precious human resource, developing on that innovation, and you want to do it in a highly automated way. That's what we're focused on. And you know, I find it really interesting, actually, you know, when I was listening to Santander, and, and obviously they, they announced their all-in migration last week with OpenBank, a division of Santander. And um, 
I thought it was really interesting how, as they develop their platform, they're looking at going globally with it. They built it on top of consistent APIs. And these APIs are available in 19 regions around the world with multiple availability zones. So typically, that's unheard of for you know, regulated institutions to go or think of that speed because entering a new country or territory could be a consequence of tens, if not hundreds of millions of investment previously to build out these facilities before you even get to test a market. So the game is, is really changing. Caroline, let me bring you in here. You've heard what Jonathan Allen had to say. What do you make of it, particularly this idea of banks putting everything that they operate, really, all their main computer systems onto the cloud? Yeah, so it's something that regulators are increasingly concerned about. And the European Banking Authority about this time last year put out quite an interesting paper on the topic. And it's something that the Bank of England has also taken up thinking about quite recently. I think for regulators, the big concern is this so-called systemic risk, this single point of failure that is now being created. If you think that thousands of banks, financial institutions are putting confidential client information, their most proprietary information onto the cloud. What happens if AWS or indeed Google or Microsoft, which are the other two big cloud providers, go down? Who is it that the Bank of England is going to call in that kind of situation? Is it Jeff Bezos? I don't think so. So they want to know what exactly the system is in the case of failure. Yeah, and of course, Jonathan Allen's riposte to that is that they're liaising very closely with regulators. They're not necessarily regulated entities themselves, but they'll absolutely work with regulators to keep the system safe. Well, I think we put that in a kind of, he would say that, wouldn't he, bucket. I mean, you have to remember that these big tech companies at the moment are not regulated anywhere near the level of the financial sector. And I think if we look at what the banks themselves are worrying about, it's this interesting tension between what essentially is a contractor providing key services to the banks, but also one that potentially might be eating the bank's own breakfast down the line and banks worry that they might be taking advantage of things like PSD2 and open banking and then build on the vast amounts of data that they already hold on all of us. Absolutely. Clearly one to watch. Thank you for that. So David, let's come to HSBC because you've been writing a fair bit about them lately. First, the news that Mark Tucker, the chairman, who we thought was effectively the full-time chairman, has taken a, a second job. And then we'll come on to talk about Huawei, the Chinese telecoms group, and the implications for HSBC. First, Mark Tucker, are people saying he shouldn't have taken this job? No one is saying he shouldn't have taken this job, but there are certainly a few raised eyebrows out there in the city. I think it came as a bit of a surprise. A lot of people think that the HSBC chairmanship really is a full-time job. In actual fact, more than a full-time job. You can't really squeeze the chairmanship of a company that large and complex and geographically disperse. You know, you have to do a lot of traveling, a lot of hours clocked up on planes to Asia. So there are raised eyebrows, but at the moment, nobody is putting their head above the parapet. And what is this role? I mean, there's no conflict of interest there. It's a South African fintech, is that right? It's a South African insurance company that has designs on becoming some kind of challenger bank in South Africa. They've worked with Mark Tucker on and off for many years. They had a partnership with him when he ran Prudential. 
and he apparently has ties to the country as well, some family background there and, and so on, and feels that this is giving something back to South Africa, if you like. So no real conflicts of interest, I suppose. I don't think anybody thinks that this Challenger Bank is going to be uh, worrying HSBC anytime soon. Okay, well, we'll see how that time management pans out. But the second issue is an altogether different one, but another challenge for the bank. Huawei, the telecoms group that's been in the news over the past week because of security concerns among the big Western nations. What's the HSBC link exactly? So the Huawei CFO was arrested last week in Canada ostensibly one of the reasons that the US authorities want her is because of sanctions busting in Iran. Now you can imagine the horror with which HSBC greets any headline that has the words HSBC, Iran and sanctions in it, given their terrible tales of woe there. And of course, HSBC in 2012 fined a huge amount, $1.9 billion for a vast array of offences, including helping Mexican drug cartels launder money and sanctions busting in Iran. Between 2012 until last year, they were under the monitorship of an independent third party as part of their deferred prosecution agreement. I'm told that the bank is categorically not under investigation, that it is viewed as a victim or a witness rather than any kind of actor. But still, it shows you that the reputational impact of that dark chapter in HSBC's history continues to resonate today. So, David, just to be clear, we don't know that they were involved in any client facilitation of anything with Iran and Huawei. But what is the potential link there? So the allegation, as I understand it, is that Huawei used front companies to deal with Iran to provide them with surveillance equipment and that these companies were banked by HSBC. But there's no suggestion that HSBC knew about this. And indeed, the allegation is that they were hoodwinked as well. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank David, Stephen and Caroline and also thank you for listening. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com offer. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.